everybody. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Lights Out Podcast. I'm your host, Josh. As always, I'm joined by my producer, Joel. And today we are covering a very dark and tragic event. This event is called the Covina Christmas Eve Massacre, which was carried out by a man named Bruce Pardo, which is who we'll be diving into first. But before we get into the episode, there's a few things I wanted to sort of announce and catch you up on. So this episode of Lights Out will actually be the very last episode until the new year. We'll actually be taking a couple weeks off over the holidays, both to give, you know, our producers and the rest of the crew. Nice little break. Yeah, exactly. Enjoy the holidays. I mean, with uh, the way the holidays fall this year, it just made sense to take a couple weeks off. But also one of the things that we're doing Uh, during this period that we're off is actually moving studios so we will be in the brand new studio that we've built for the very first episode back in the new year which is pretty exciting it is can't believe it's already here we've been waiting a long time for this it's been a long process and just you know with everything going on in the world and just you know delays on shipping and everything it took a lot longer to get the new studio put together uh, than we originally thought i know i probably have said (laughs) multiple times on here that we're going to be in the new studio uh in a few weeks or something like that but this is it like we are doing this cut over to the new studio 100 so when you see the next episode of the lights out podcast it's going to be a totally new setup it's in a totally new space totally new vibe to it which is which is cool so i'm excited to see what you guys think of that so with that being said our first episode back will be january 21st so that is when you can expect that new episode in the new studio to drop and we will be you know off to the races at that point but this episode of the podcast is brought to you by canva sundance now and HelloFresh. also there is still some merch out there at milehighmerch.com uh, we restocked the uh, candle skull logo uh, long sleeve t-shirt and hoodie so if you didn't get a chance to get your hands on one of those go get it while you can it's limited quantity and i'm not sure how long they will last so again that's milehighmerch.com and lastly we wanted to thank you for supporting the lights out podcast it's been really awesome to see the show grow over this year it's been a hugely successful year for us i think our growth was like up 200 plus percent this yeah, year insane growth is, which is actually crazy. I mean, we when we started this, I really had no idea what the show was going to become. And, yeah. you know, if you watch the other show I co-host, Smile Heart Podcast, I know many of you watch both of those shows. But when I started this, I really had no idea that there's this many people interested in sort of this darker side of crime and society and, you know, the paranormal world. And so it's just been an absolute joy for Joel and I to be able to do this together. And obviously as brothers, it's, yeah. you know, a really fun experience to sort of work on this together. Absolutely. Living the dream. For yeah, sure. we're, we're definitely living the dream. So, <laughs> yeah. thank you to yeah, thank you. all of you for all your kind words, support, and just understanding. You know, things happen, and you know, we've had to cancel some episodes, and maybe our break is a little bit longer than you'd like. But just know that we have, you know, we do this in order to provide the best possible quality and experience for our listeners, and, and you know, people watching on YouTube, and yeah. you know, now we're on TikTok, and you know, we're trying to expand our reach, and so you know just thank you to every single one of you we appreciate you guys absolutely but let's go ahead and jump into this absolutely horrific event that occurred and it's kind of ironic that the day this episode is going up is christmas eve and this event happened on christmas eve in 2008 by a man named bruce jeffrey pardo 
Now, Bruce was born on March 23rd, 1963 in Los Angeles, California. He went to John H. Francis Polytechnic High School in Sun Valley, California, and after graduating, he attended California State University in Northridge. Then he went on to work at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in La Cañada, Flintridge. He was incredibly smart and made a lot of money in his field of work. But despite how smart he was, his work and attitude as an employee were just awful. He had terrible attendance and he spent his time digging into the company's computer systems, looking at private files. He was obsessed with looking at the other employees' salaries and tax information. He constantly had money on his mind and he was jealous of anyone that made more than him. Even though he had a decent salary in the engineering field, he couldn't help but compare himself to everyone else. And his obsession with money often caused problems throughout his dating life. Through his 20s, he had a long string of bad relationships and he struggled with long-term commitments. But in 1988, he got engaged to a coworker named Dahlia and they planned a wedding together. At the time, Bruce still lived with his mother, Nancy, and he complained about not having enough money to put towards the wedding. Or he just didn't want to spend any of his own money. So Dahlia agreed to pay for the entire wedding reception at a local country club. She also bought their airplane tickets and their hotel reservations for their honeymoon in Tahiti. Everything was booked and they set their wedding date for June 17th, 1989. Bruce's mother was so excited for him to finally commit to a long-term relationship and he would finally move out and have a family of his own. But when the day of the wedding came, Bruce got cold feet and left Dahlia standing at the altar. She later learned that Bruce had in fact withdrawn $3,000 from their joint bank account and took a trip to Palm Springs, Florida. His mother noticed a pattern of serious commitment problems and she was constantly upset with Bruce. All Nancy wanted was for her son to get married and have a long-term stable relationship. But her dream was a lost cause. Dahlia called off their engagement, rightfully so, and never wanted to see Bruce again. Years passed, and every single one of Bruce's relationships failed. In the early 2000s, when Bruce was in his late 30s, he met a woman named Elena Lucano, and they began a serious relationship. They moved in together, and eventually had a son named Matthew. But Bruce never proposed to Elena. Even though they were building a life together, he still had major commitment issues. One day, in 2001, Elena left to go grocery shopping, and she left Bruce and their 13-month-old son at home in Woodland Hills. When she got home after a few hours, she found Bruce standing there holding their son in his arms. Matthew was soaking wet, and he looked lifeless. His head slung over Bruce's arm, and his skin had turned blue. Bruce claimed that Matthew had fallen in the pool while Bruce was watching TV. And right before she got home, he had just gotten him out of the pool. But Bruce just stood there holding Matthew. He didn't even bother to perform CPR. So Elena, obviously very upset and frantic, grabbed her son, put him in the car, and rushed him to the nearest hospital. Luckily, paramedics were able to resuscitate him, and they then airlifted him to a children's hospital in Los Angeles. And after hours of treatment, Matthew was left with severe brain injuries from the lack of oxygen. He could no longer use his arms or legs, and he would spend the rest of his life in a wheelchair and would need constant care every single day. In the aftermath of their son nearly drowning, 
Bruce and Elena broke up six months later, and Bruce tried to cut Elena and his son out of his life entirely, but he couldn't ignore the fact that he still had a son that needed constant medical attention. After only the first year of their son's treatment, the hospital bill racked up to $340,000. Elena was left paying all the bills, and Bruce hadn't contributed anything. So she did what any mother would do and took his ass to court. In the end, she got his $100,000 homeowner's insurance, and they set up a trust for $240 per month towards their son's hospital care for the rest of his life. But this still wasn't nearly enough to cover their son's medical care. After the lawsuit was over in 2002, Bruce cut all contact with Elena and Matthew. And when things got hard, Bruce left like he always did. He wanted nothing to do with them. And he pretended like they didn't exist at all. But Nancy kept in contact with Elena and tried to support Matthew the best she could. Nancy began to resent Bruce and was constantly disappointed with how he handled the entire situation. Trying to leave his past behind, Bruce kept on dating, even though he clearly couldn't maintain a stable relationship or support his own son. In 2004, Bruce's coworker introduced him to Sylvia Ortega. She was a 40-year-old mother of three, and they hit it off immediately. By January 29, 2006, they married and bought a three-bedroom, half-a-million-dollar home in Montrose. And by this time, Bruce had a job as an electrical engineer at ITT Electronic Systems and was making around $122,000 a year. Bruce had a lot of money, and he liked to flaunt it. He owned a Cadillac Escalade, a Hummer, and a boat that he kept on Lake Havasu. They lived near a Redeemer Catholic church where Bruce volunteered as an usher at the children's mass on Sundays, and the church community and friends had only good things to say about Bruce. He seemed like an upstanding guy, and his family seemed to be living out the American dream. Sylvia worked in a flower breeding company in El Monte and made about $31,000 a year, and they lived together with Sylvia's three children, including a five-year-old daughter that Bruce had grown close to, and they had a dog together named Saki, and everything seemed to be going well. And over a few years, they had saved over $88,000 together. But in 2007, their marriage started falling apart. Bruce had become cold, distant, and protective over his money. By December, Sylvia was sleeping in a different room and spending the weekends with her parents. Bruce had refused to open a joint account with her, even though they were married and saving money together. Bruce didn't want any of his money going towards Sylvia's children from her previous marriage, and he argued that he didn't have any children before their marriage, so why should any money go to them? But soon, Bruce's mother Nancy spilled the beans about Matthew. She had grown close to Sylvia, and she no longer wanted to participate in this lie they were keeping. Bruce had lied to Sylvia for years about not having any children. He hadn't seen his son Matthew in years, but he still claimed him as a dependent, of course. Nancy kept in contact with Bruce's ex-girlfriend Elena over the years, and she hated how her son had handled the situation. She knew that she had to tell Sylvia about Matthew. It was a lie of omission that weighed on her conscience. And after Sylvia found out about Matthew, she was disgusted with Bruce. Not only was he hiding the fact that he had a child, but he also claimed him as a dependent to get a break on his taxes. So Sylvia and Bruce separated in March 2008, and by April she filed for divorce. 
She then took Bruce to court and demanded that he pay for her attorney fees and $3,166 in monthly spousal support. Supposedly, Bruce had also taken out nearly $71,000 from their $88,000 in savings in just two months. And he had been putting these funds in a private account that Sylvia didn't have access to. And by the end of the nasty divorce, the court ended up siding with Sylvia, and she was awarded the payments in June of 2008. In that same month, Bruce bought his first firearm, a 9mm handgun. And only one month later, Bruce lost his job at ITT. He was actually fired for billing false hours. He tried to apply for unemployment benefits, but he was denied since he was fired from his job. He also complained about not getting a severance package. And without any income, debt quickly snuck up on Bruce. And his obsession with money sent him into a downward spiral. In a court filing, he claimed he had $8,900 in monthly expenses and was losing $2,678 a month. This was stacked on top of $31,000 in credit card debt and $2,700 in monthly mortgage payments. He was also denied unemployment benefits. So the courts lowered his payments to Sylvia. Instead of $3,166 a month, Bruce would then pay only $1,785. But he still had to pay an additional $3,500 for missing previous payments. Allegedly, the court awarded Bruce the house, but they ordered him to pay Sylvia $10,000, and he had to give her back the diamond wedding ring. She also ended up keeping the family dog, Saki. During the divorce, Bruce had told a friend that Sylvia was, quote-unquote, taking him to the cleaners. He wrote his first check to Sylvia, but it bounced, and he never tried to pay her again. He complained that Sylvia wanted all of his money, but she lived with her parents didn't pay rent, bought a luxury car, went on gambling trips to Vegas and ate at fancy restaurants, paid for private massages, and started golf lessons. Bruce tried to make her look like a leech that only wanted his money. Bruce ended up resenting Sylvia for all of this, and his anger grew by the day. His unemployment, financial struggles, and divorce stacked on top of one another and led Bruce down a dark hole. On August 8th, he bought a second 9mm handgun, and another on September 8th. By law, he had to wait for a minimum of 30 days between buying firearms. In theory, the mandate is supposed to help with background checks and limit the number of weapons for violent offenders, but Bruce didn't have a record, so he easily kept buying more handguns. He also contacted one of his neighbors who was an owner of a costume shop called Jerry's Costumes, where he ordered a custom-sized Santa suit that had a little bit of extra room inside the coat. Bruce was a large man. He was six foot four and weighed 270 pounds, so he needed a Santa suit tailored to his size with enough room to hold his weapons. He told them it was for a children's party, and he put down a $200 deposit, promising to pay the rest later. And on October 11th, he purchased his fourth 9mm handgun. Not long after, he got a call from an old high school friend named Steve, and he asked Bruce if he wanted to come and visit him in Illinois for his 45th birthday. Bruce accepted the invitation, and while he was in Illinois, he told Steve everything that had happened between him and Sylvia. He had no one else to talk to, so he opened up to his friend 
and he told him about how he had lost his job at ITT and was up to his neck in debt. He also told him about how he was still going through a divorce with his wife, and every time he went to court, he was embarrassed because all of his finances were on full display. And the worst of all, his own mother, Nancy, chose to sit with Sylvia's family during the divorce proceedings, and she refused to support Bruce through any of it. And while listening to his story, Steve consoled Bruce. But there was nothing else he could do besides listen to him vent. He had known Bruce for decades, and he always seemed like a nice guy. But he had no idea that in the back of Bruce's mind, he was planning something horrific. After the visit with Steve, Bruce eventually returned to California, and in November he picked up the Santa suit from Jerry's costumes. The suit was perfect. It fit his giant frame and left a little bit of extra room inside the coat. He paid the rest of what he owed and left a $20 tip. And on November 13th, he bought another handgun. And he gathered a few different tools and gadgets from a department store, including a DeWalt air compressor, a 50-foot hose, and a tank of high-octane fuel. He began working on a secret project in his basement when he got home. And on December 18th, just a week before Christmas, Bruce and Sylvia went to court for the last time. Their divorce was final. And Bruce felt nothing but anger and rage towards Sylvia. Before we continue, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. So we pick up this story the night before Christmas, only a week after the divorce of Sylvia and Bruce. Sylvia's parents, 80-year-old Jose Ortega and 70-year-old Alicia Ortega, hosted their annual Christmas party. The grandkids called him Papa Joe, and they loved spending their Christmas Eve at their grandparents' house in Covina. Jose was a first-generation U.S. citizen, and he started his own business, and he had a very successful career. He recently had retired earlier that year, and one of his sons took over the family business. He had been married to his wife, Alicia, for 53 years, and they loved hosting their Christmas party. They hosted the family get-together every year at their home in Covina, a quiet city 30 miles east of L.A., Christmas was when they could see all of their family members come together, give each other gifts, and relax by the fire. They had a large family with five sons and daughters named James, Charles, Letitia, Alicia, and Sylvia. They also invited their children's families, so there ended up being about 25 to 30 people at the Christmas party. The party went on as usual. It was loud, festive, and everyone was having a good time. Even Sylvia was enjoying herself, even though she had just finalized her divorce the week before. The Ortegas and their five children played a game of Texas Hold'em in the dining room. This was their little Christmas tradition, playing Texas Hold'em every year. And most of the kids and grandkids hung out around the backyard next to the pool. And one of the grandchildren, a 17-year-old named Michael, was upstairs on the computer by himself. As the night went on, the adults gathered around the front of the house around 11.30. They finished their final conversations and got ready to say their goodbyes. But as they wrapped up the party, a knock came from the front door. Sylvia's eight-year-old niece, Katrina, ran to greet the stranger at the door. And as the door flew open, a man in a Santa Claus costume stood in the doorway. He wore a big red baggy costume, a big white beard, and he held a giant present under his arm. Katrina knew it was close to midnight and he figured Santa must have been making his rounds. 
so she screamed in excitement and ran towards the big man in the suit. As she approached him, the man pulled out and pointed a 9mm handgun at Katrina's face and pulled the trigger. The bullet tore through her cheek and she fell to the floor screaming. As soon as the gunshot rang out, the entire family scrambled in a panic. A few yelled out, telling everyone to run for cover or get down on the floor. And within seconds, the warm Christmas get-together became hell on earth. The man dressed in a Santa Claus costume continued firing off rounds into the house. Shot after shot, he sprayed bullets towards anyone he could see. He wasn't worried about running out of ammunition, because he had three more 9mm handguns hidden under his Santa coat. When he ran out of bullets in the first gun, he put it back under his coat and grabbed another fully loaded pistol. The adults grabbed their children and tried to flee. Some ducked under the dining room table, but it was no use. One of Sylvia's brothers, 50-year-old James, caught one of the bullets in his chest and dropped to the floor. As he went down, her other brother, Charles, aged 49, recognized the shooter beneath the Santa disguise. There was only one man he knew that was six foot four. 270 pounds and had a grudge against his family. And that's when he shouted out, It's Bruce, just before being shot and falling to the floor. And despite both brothers being shot, James and Charles tried to lift themselves off of the ground and charge at Bruce, but it was no use. He shot them multiple times before they could even put up a fight. Sylvia scrambled under the dining room table with her sister Alicia, but she was helpless against her ex-husband. He had prepared himself with enough guns and ammunition to kill as many as he possibly could. Sylvia's mother and father, Alicia and Jose, also dove under the dining room table, seeing no other place to hide. But they knew they wouldn't survive the night. Bruce proceeded to spray bullets into the dining room. With wood from the dining room table flying across the room, as her blood splattered across the carpet and the walls. And after the gunshots stopped for a moment, anyone who survived the first round of gunshots lay on the floor, bleeding out. Bruce walked over to them and watched them suffer, and he stood over them, aimed his pistol, and shot each of them in the head, execution style. The only Ortega daughter to survive the shooting was Leticia, the mother of Katrina. She had luckily escaped the house with a few other family members. She ran through the backyard and hopped the fence, and as they scattered throughout the neighborhood looking for help, Bruce was still raining down terror inside of the Ortega home. Once he shot everyone that he possibly could, he took the giant gift tucked under his arm and unwrapped it, and inside was a flamethrower. With his skills in engineering, he designed and welded together a homemade flamethrower over the past few months. It was a rolling air compressor that he had redesigned to spray high-octane gasoline. He took the homemade machine and doused the whole house with gas. He covered the bodies, the furniture, and the floors with gas. But Bruce didn't realize that there were open flames in two fireplaces inside of the home. And once the fumes of the high-octane gas hit the fireplaces, the house exploded into flames. And the entire first floor ignited, with Bruce still inside. He underestimated how much gas he had spread, and the burst of fire set his Santa costume ablaze. The flames began to burn his coat, and the heat fused the plastic linings to the skin of his arms and legs. During the madness, one of the family members, Letitia, had fled to one of the neighbor's houses and called 911. Here's an excerpt of that call. Covina 911. Who's coming? 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 Who's co
Several other neighbors had called 911 once they heard the gunshots. They had all reported the same thing, and a few saw a man walking towards the house dressed as Santa before the gunshots started. Some even reported that he had waved to them and said Merry Christmas before going into the Ortega's house. Luckily, many escaped the house. A 16-year-old girl was shot and wounded in the back but managed to run into the backyard. Joshua Chavez was a man from Seattle visiting his parents that night and they lived in the house just behind the Ortegas. And after he heard the gunshots, he ran to the backyard where three of the partygoers, including the girl shot in the back, climbed the fence between the properties and ran to safety. And within 20 seconds, Joshua saw the house completely engulfed in flames. The whole neighborhood gathered up groups of survivors while others called 911. And when the police and SWAT team arrived, Bruce was already long gone, and the entire house was burning. Bruce had ditched his Santa hat and a fake pair of glasses in the front yard before taking off in his rental car. And as the fire trucks pulled up to the house, the flames were 40 to 50 feet in the air, and the burning house lit up the entire block. The family members that survived watched the house go down in flames, and it took nearly 80 firefighters over an hour and a half to finally put out the fire. And by Christmas morning, the house was almost entirely decimated. The charred bodies of nine family members had turned to ash somewhere in the rubble, and only their skeletons remained. Three more sustained injuries, but survived. Katrina's face was wounded from the gunshot, and the bullet went through her cheek and jaw, and she needed surgery, but she was able to escape the house and survive. And another 20-year-old woman who had jumped from the second floor window and broke her ankle survived as well, and the rest escaped unharmed. Most of them were children since they were towards the back of the house near the pool when the gunshots began. And after everything was said and done, 13 of the survivors were orphaned that night. The nine that died were so badly burned that police had to identify them by their dental and medical records. Jose and Alicia, the grandparents, died of gunshot wounds. Four of their five children died from multiple gunshot wounds and smoke inhalation. Their names were Charles... James, Alicia, and Sylvia. Alicia's son, Michael, died while he was alone upstairs, and reports suggest that he might have died from the initial gas explosion. And both Charles' wife, Sherry, and James' wife, Teresa, died in the fire. And after the firefighters had doused the flames, police began working the crime scene. As they identified the bodies, they also interviewed eyewitnesses, asking if they knew who the shooter was. And there was only one person who knew the shooter, without a doubt. And when they interviewed Letitia, the woman who barely escaped, she told police that it was Bruce Pardo, Sylvia's ex-husband. One of the neighbors also spotted his bright blue Dodge Caliber leaving the cul-de-sac right around 11.45 p.m. It was the only car leaving the area after the gunshots went off, and it was suspicious because all of his lights were turned off. So police suspected that the blue Dodge Caliber was the car they'd be looking for. Police put an APB out on the car and began the manhunt for Bruce. Many of the neighbors and the police officers were worried that the suspect was going to find another house to shoot up and burn down, thinking that there was a deranged psychopath on the loose. Meanwhile, a 911 call was made out of Silmar, 
which is about 40 miles northwest of Covina. The man who made the call was Brad Pardo, Bruce's brother. He had gotten home around 3.10 a.m. from a Christmas party and found his brother dead on the living room couch. When police inspected the scene, Bruce had a hole in the top of his head, and a bullet hole was found in the ceiling above him, and in his hand rested a 9mm pistol. It was clear to police that Bruce had placed the barrel of the gun in his mouth and shot himself in the head. Two of his other pistols were found next to his body. And when they searched his house, they found four handguns, a tactical shotgun, and a container of high-octane gas. Each of the pistols could hold 13 bullets, and they found five empty boxes of pistol ammo and 200 more rounds that he didn't use. They also found what police called a virtual bomb factory where he possibly made his flamethrower and a pipe bomb. After the search of his home, police began investigating Bruce's history. And Bruce's neighbor told police that he had come by earlier in the evening, saying that he was going to a Christmas party. He was also on the list to serve communion during midnight mass at his Catholic church, but he never showed up. With the Santa costume, the handguns, and the homemade flamethrower, it was clear to police that Bruce had planned this massacre for a while. It was also clear his motive was most likely revenge for the divorce, and they thought that the loss of his job and his growing debt just pushed him over the edge. But investigators believe that Bruce's killing spree was stopped short. Some even suggest that he was going to kill his own mother, since she was the one that triggered the divorce when she told Sylvia about his son Matthew. He knew his mom had sided with Sylvia in the divorce, and they had resented each other over the past few months. And Bruce knew his mom had been invited to the Christmas Eve party, but she didn't end up going because she felt sick that night. They think Bruce didn't plan on killing himself before that night because he had $17,000 in cash strapped to his legs. Bruce's mother said that she hoped the $17,000 in cash would go to the children of the victims. He had also bought a $650 round-trip airline ticket to Illinois that was supposed to leave on Christmas morning at 12.20 a.m., barely a half hour after the massacre. Another clue revealed Bruce's intention to flee. He had also called a friend in Illinois a few days before and told him he was planning to visit. Still, investigators weren't sure if he was actually going to go to Illinois or if he just bought the tickets to confuse investigators and throw them off of his trail. But either way, he never made it past that night. An autopsy showed that the gas explosions left severe second and third degree burns all across Bruce's arms. The heat was so intense from the gas explosions that some of the Santa coat melted and fused with his skin. Investigators thought that his injuries stopped him from fleeing, and he realized that his injuries were too severe, and he wasn't going to make it through the airport, or wherever he planned on going next. He had fled the crime scene that night and returned to his rental car, the blue Dodge Caliber. He carefully peeled the Santa suit off of his skin, which must have been agonizing. His adrenaline must have been pulsing through his body for him to be able to tolerate that level of pain. The melted Santa suit left impressions where it fused to his skin, and some pieces of his melted skin were still attached to the suit when he peeled it off. Second and third degree burns ran up and down both of his arms that were bright red, and after he threw the suit into the passenger seat, he changed his clothes as best as he could and drove to his brother's house. And likely after realizing his injuries were too severe, he knew he couldn't go anywhere. He might have considered checking himself into a hospital, and then he would definitely have been caught. So he just decided to kill himself instead. He walked into his brother's home, sat down on the living room sofa, and put the 9mm pistol in his mouth, and aimed it towards the top of his head, 
and pulled the trigger. A toxicology report later found traces of cocaine in his system, which he most likely used before the shooting. And after examining Bruce's body, police found his rental car one block from his brother's house. And inside the car, they found his Santa suit bunched up in the front seat. And they noticed that something was wrong. A strange smell came from the car. And the police determined that his Santa suit had been rigged because they also found roughly 300 rounds of ammunition, a pipe bomb, and a booby trap that was rigged to a flare, and gunpowder sprinkled around the suit. And if they moved the suit at all, they thought the flare would ignite and blow up the car. Believing the inside of the car was rigged to blow, police contacted the bomb squad, and when they arrived, they used a robotic device to approach the vehicle. Some reports suggest that the bomb squad intentionally lit the car on fire with a flamethrowing device attached to the robot. Others report that they accidentally triggered the trap and lit the car on fire. But either way, the car burst into flames and burned until there was almost nothing left. Afterward, they ended up finding a second rental car tied to Bruce's name, a gray 1999 Toyota RAV4 that was parked in Glendale. It was found near the neighborhood where Sylvia's divorce attorney lived, so they suspected that he might have planned on killing him too. They didn't find any explosives in the RAV4 rental car, but they did find food, clothing, a gas canister, a laptop, a desktop computer, and a map of the southwestern United States and Mexico. The map suggested that the airline ticket to Illinois might have been a diversion, and Bruce was possibly planning to flee the country. Either way, whatever Bruce had planned on doing, he wasn't willing to face the consequences. But in the wake of the massacre, the entire community of Covina came together. Many people left flowers and teddy bears along the chain-link fence that guarded the burnt-down property, and friends and family came by to say their prayers. The city had held a meeting at a local school where hundreds of family, friends, and neighbors gathered to mourn the tragedy. Many wore orange ribbons in remembrance of the nine victims, and they all tried to cope with the fact that such a bizarre and senseless massacre happened in their quiet city. Mental health counselors and trauma specialists handed out pamphlets and referrals for anyone who needed help processing the trauma. Many of the children were confused that Santa Claus was the one who committed the murders. So local psychiatrists informed parents on how to talk to their kids about what had happened. Bruce had taken the image of Santa, a person full of love and warmth, and turned it into an image of violence and horror. He had family, friends, and a church community that supported him, but he still committed an absolutely heinous act. It was an act of terror that the people of Covina especially the Ortega family, won't ever forget. Leticia Ortega, the only daughter of Jose and Alicia that survived, now runs a blog called Leticia's Hope. And she writes about her experiences and how she has healed over the years. Her daughter Katrina is now an outspoken advocate for those affected by gun violence. Here's a couple words from Katrina. Being able to really fight for something that is truly, truly close to my heart. I just knew I had to keep fighting and I knew I would live my life to the fullest for each one of my family members and everybody affected by gun violence. Especially with Christmas time, it's been something of light now. It's something my family continues to celebrate instead of look down upon. You're left here on this earth for a reason. You're left here for a purpose and your job is to keep fighting and to shine that light on everybody else that has been affected. I can't even imagine what this family has gone through since this horrible, horrible event that happened in 2008. I mean, I'm sure it's been extremely hard to celebrate Christmas. I mean, from, from that point on, I couldn't even imagine the, just the trauma and memories and 
the things that they saw that day that are now implanted into their minds like it's just horrible i mean it's it's just it's so sad and i feel so bad for this family and you know the fact that all these children were orphaned because this deranged man just couldn't deal with his own issues and decided to take it out on this poor innocent family that literally did nothing to him is just horrible and i'm just going to go ahead and end the episode there i mean there's really not much else to say i think i think it's just important that with these events that you know we remember those who were lost and lost their lives in this senseless act that was carried out by bruce and yeah just want to remember the victims of this horrible massacre and we will see you all in the new year stay safe out there enjoy the holidays and we'll see you in january Thank you.